Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. Thanks for joining us today. We are excited to get into this case. Christy and I have actually been discussing it a little bit, so she does know a little bit about the case. I think we need to buckle up, listeners. I think we're in for a bit of a wild ride here. Yeah, you are. (laughs) We've been warned. So I think we should just get into it. While I was preparing this case, I did come across some research that had some really interesting stats. Sometimes I really just can't hide my true nerdy self because I love stats. Some of you may have seen these stats on our Monday post for dirtbag details. If you haven't seen them, check out our Facebook page on Mondays. The state of Louisiana produces a lot of serial killers per capita. Louisiana? What's happening there? I don't know. It doesn't have the most because that title goes to Alaska, but Louisiana is no slacker in this department. And the city of Baton Rouge in Louisiana, was recently deemed serial killer capital by a recent TV show. And that statement is pretty accurate. Oh, I thought California was like the capital for serial killers. California as a state does produce a lot of serial killers. The most, actually. Not per capita, but the most overall. But the city of Baton Rouge? So for a city, it has the most. Yeah, because in a 10-year span between 1991 and 2001, there were 53 unsolved murders of just women in the Baton Rouge area alone. Oh, man. These women were from all different races and backgrounds, and they died in a variety of different ways. The situation was actually getting so out of control that in 2002, there was a multi-agency task force formed to aid in the investigation of all of these murders. It was a way for the police forces of different parishes, which is the equivalent to different counties in Louisiana, to work together to help ease the panic that was being felt among the residents of Baton Rouge and the surrounding areas. Yeah, and understandably so. 50-some unsolved murders is so many. Mm-hmm. There were five serial killers. No. During a 10-year span. No way. Mm-hmm. Yikes. That's terrifying. It is. That's why it got the name Serial Killer Capital. Yeah, no kidding. By the time the task force was created, public hysteria had reached a fever pitch. It caused a run on alarm system, pepper sprays, and guns being bought for self-protection. Women were encouraged to take self-defense classes and never to be out alone at night or open their doors to strangers. People avoided talking to others in the street because they feared their neighbors might be murderers. That's so terrifying. Mm-hmm. I know on some of our dirtbag details, some of our listeners have commented some of the places that they've had to live and how that was just normal, people getting murdered. And that is just such a terrifying way to live. It would be. But during this time period, everyone was watching everyone, calling in tips into this special task force that was created looking for a serial killer. Wow. Because when the task force started, they didn't know they had more than one. They thought they were just looking for one murderer. Let alone five. And how hard to keep all that straight. Mm Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the killer that we're going to talk about today, though, was aided by this hysteria and was able to continue his ruthless terror because of eyewitness testimony and the profile this task force had created for him. And I know you might think this a little sacrilegious of me to say, because you're a huge Profiler fan, but in this case, the Profiler got one very important detail very wrong. Oh, that does actually happen more often than we think. Mm Mm-hmm. 
but I do love me a profiler. <laughs> I, I think that would be an amazing job. Do you think it'd be too dark? Uh, what do you think we're already talking about all the time, Melissa? <laughs> what what consumes our days? It's true. <laughs> Between research, recording, and editing. <laughs> but just think of the depth that they would have to live in those people's lives. We're in it for a few months. But That's true. they would have to dig so deep. It could definitely be disturbing, for sure. Yeah. But today, let's dig deep into Derek Todd Lee. He was born on November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana. His mom, Florence Lee, was only 17 at the time and wasn't married to his father, Samuel Roth. The couple would stay together just long enough to have another child, a sister for Derek. Derek would go by his middle name, Todd, with family and friends, but I'm going to continue calling him Derek because I feel no affection towards this vile man. Yeah, he doesn't deserve his little nickname. Nope. When his dad exited from his life at a young age, it was seen as a positive thing by most of his close family members. His dad had several mental health issues and was not a stable individual. Hmm. There are some reports that he suffered from bipolar disorder and had periods of psychosis. Which would make it really hard for him to care for a child. They're not undergoing the proper treatment. Mm -hmm. Derek would never really know his father growing up and would only be reintroduced to him when he turned 21. And just a short time after that reunion, his father was arrested in 1991 for the attempted manslaughter of his ex-wife and was institutionalized. Oh my goodness. I always find that really interesting when the parents have similar criminal histories. And for Derek's family, it continues into his children's lives. Really? So three generations? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. But let's get back to Derek's mother. Okay. Derek's mother, who he was overly dependent on, was described as a domineering woman. She remarried when he was just a young boy to a man named Coleman Barrow. Coleman was the only father that Derek knew growing up. Samuel was never actually even listed on the birth record. And that's his biological dad. Mm -hmm. Derek's relationship with his stepfather is reported in many different ways by many different sources. Some say that Coleman was this hard worker that cared for Florence's children like they were his own, and that both he and Florence were religious and raised their children to be good people. Some reports claim that Coleman and Derek had a close relationship, and others say it was all the exact opposite of this. Oh, that makes it really hard mm -hmm. when there's so many conflicting reports. Yeah. Some say that Coleman was abusive towards the young boy and that continued throughout his childhood and that the relationship between step-parent and child would be strained Derek's whole life. And does Derek ever make statements about it? Yeah. The latter story is told mostly by Derek and most extended family members take the first viewpoint. Oh, so it's hard to say, though, because when it's a dirtbag murderer saying, yeah, my stepdad was mean or abused me, is he trying to justify his actions? Yeah. Or is that really happening? And were the family members just sweeping it under the rug, so to speak? It's hard to say in this account because some of that sweeping under the rug does happen. But there was one psychological report done on Derek later in life that made the claim that the physical punishment that Derek endured was pretty typical of the time frame. Okay. So that's the only kind of evidence there is of it. Right. And what was allowed to fly back then does not fly anymore. That's right. But regardless of the severity of the physical abuse, it did occur, and it seemed to be pretty formative in Derek's life. So no matter how severe we would perceive it to be, Derek perceived it to be severe, and right. it disrupted his bond with his father. That makes sense. All sources agree that Derek grew up around numerous extended family members in a big supportive community that was, for the most part, a happy environment. 
Derek lived in a small settlement of Independence just outside of St. Francisville in an area that locals called Lee's Quarters. Lee's Quarters was on Blackmore Lane, and it was a collection of homes and trailers. It was there that Derek was surrounded by his aunts, uncles, and cousins. By his sister's later accounts, this was a close-knit, loving community. Derek reportedly had 13 siblings or half-siblings and a multitude of cousins to play with as a child. Oh, wow. That's a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. It was this whole little village made up of his family. It sounds super fun to grow up that way, Mm -hmm. but that's a lot. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of kids to take care of. And it seems from his sister's reports, it was like everybody just kind of took care of everybody else's kids. It was like a village. Mm -hmm. I kind of love that. So here is where I think it's important to mention a little bit of history about this town and the development of the social structure in it. Today, St. Francisville, much like surrounding towns, is a quaint, kind of quiet little town filled with century-old antebellum plantation homes that attracts tourists for its small-town feel and historical buildings. It's just under 100 kilometers or about 60 miles outside of the city area of Baton Rouge. Okay. Because of its geographical location in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, it has this rich soil for growing and these perfect riverbeds for flat-bottom boats that were used to haul cotton in the 1800s. The town's history led to a very diverse population of African Americans and Caucasian people, which coexisted at the time that Derek was born. But the coexistence as we know it wasn't always harmonious. Probably mostly wasn't harmonious, Mm -hmm. if we're being honest. Yeah. There are a few sensitive subjects that I'll be bringing up in today's case, and I'm sure that there will be someone that I will offend by discussing it. But I honestly feel like if we don't kind of put our foot out there and possibly into our mouth by discussing these things, that we don't really ever learn from our own blunders. So while we'll take some care in being sensitive, and I apologize in advance for those I offend, offense isn't meant. Offense is never meant coming from us. No. The last thing we would want to do is offend any of our listeners, but... Just from what Melissa has told me about this case, the situation of the times and the different races of the people definitely plays a role in this case. Absolutely. And in 1970, the Louisiana courts ordered that all schools must integrate. And this was the time that Derek was heading into school. In the Deep South, this was no easy feat. And the lived experience, I'm sure, wasn't fully captured in the history books that we read today. No, it's definitely a positive thing that that was happening, but it would not have been an easy thing, especially coming from an African-American background. That would have been really trying Mm -hmm. because not everybody would have been welcoming. Not at all. And in this little area of the world, the integration went worse than most. Oh, no. Schools complied to the order by opening their doors, but separating classrooms for black students and white students. It wasn't exactly the idea behind the law. The situation was made even more tense and created even more hostility as beloved black principals in Baton Rouge lost their jobs to apparently more qualified white principals. Preferential treatment was given to one race over another based solely on skin color. People took to the streets to protest and riot gear and gas masks were often resorted to in the multiple violent confrontations that happened. Oh, man. So it's not really like a honest integration. It's black children are allowed to now enter white schools. Yeah, but you'll have your own classrooms. Keeping them separate. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And it seems to be an ongoing issue today. In the most recent data that I could find from 2018, 23 of Louisiana's 69 school districts are still under a desegregation order because they still haven't made all the necessary changes to be considered legally integrated. What? Get out. It seems so wild, doesn't it? 2018, like that's like right now. Mm Mm-hmm. 
that blows my mind. How terrible. Yeah. You think that we talk about these things and they're way back in history and it's actually not. No, people are still going through this BS. (laughs) Yep. And that was the world that Derek grew up in. People were segregated, even though integration was the buzzword of the time. Derek grew up in a world that made a big deal about which people were allowed to be in certain places and which people had more power, all based on the color of their skin. And who's to say, as a child, playing with his cousins in Lee's quarters, how much of this he took in, but I think his future victim type is interesting in light of the social conflicts that he was raised in. Hmm. And that's why I brought it up. And that's the only time we bring up race and that kind of stuff is when it does play into the case. Because it does in some of the cases that we have already covered, and probably some that we will still cover one day. Yep. Having put all that social stuff aside... Derek himself, as a child, was a unique individual. When he began school, Derek was slower than other children his age to catch on to concepts, and he was teased mercilessly for continuing to suck his thumb and calling the teacher mama. Aww. To make him even more of a target to other students, he had chronic asthma, and he had to go through speech therapy so he could be better understood. And he was called, quote, retarded by other classmates and was eventually moved into a special education program to accommodate his intellectual disabilities. He had IQ testing done as a child and his tests usually fell in the borderline category between 70 and 80. Hmm. He did have some outlying results on either side of that occasionally, but for the most part, he was considered borderline to low intelligence. So that's a rough start Mm -hmm. in the situation that he is. Yeah. He would struggle throughout his school years and eventually drop out in grade 11. His one accomplishment in school was playing the drums in the school's marching band with his cousin Ray, who he was the closest with. Huh. It's too bad. Like grade 11, like you've almost made it. But we're not there to live the trials that he was going through at that time. Right. I think he had other things preoccupying his time by that age. Hmm. While Derek's understanding and his IQ were not exactly average, it did seem, though, from reports of his character that he was able to function somewhat normally, for a serial killer anyways. What is very evident is that he could be charming and persuasive to get what he wanted. And at times, it almost seemed like Derek would use his slower understanding to get out of things and avoid taking responsibility for his actions. Oh, which would kind of make him way more cunning than anyone would expect. Right, for his IQ level. Yeah, so he was smart enough to use it to his advantage. Yes, Absolutely. Huh. Derek did have some unusual traits beyond his learning that made him even more peculiar. He was a self-described loner, and by the age of nine, he was reported to have a tendency to stand outside his female cousin's bedrooms and watch them while they got undressed. No. Yeah. By age nine? Mm-hmm. It started super early. Oh, and we know voyeurism is a way that a lot of serial killers start. Well, we know that now, but back then they didn't. No. And Derek's little act of being a peeping Tom wasn't really a big secret from anybody. Most of his family members knew what was going on. And I don't know if it was because of the time and people didn't really have an understanding that voyeurism could lead into the things that we know it can lead into today, or if it was just kind of all swept under the rug, chalking it up to Derek just being his odd little self. Like, oh, he doesn't understand. He doesn't know any better. That's just Derek. Yeah, I could see that. An elderly neighbor said that no one ever called the police because people just thought he was being curious and would grow out of it. Yeah, you can see how at that time people would feel that way. And he's only nine. It's not like he's this 16-year-old boy who is full into adolescence and puberty. This is still like a young child. Mm -hmm. But regardless, 
they should have been taking some action to stop him from doing so because those poor girls were still being traumatized, being looked in on. Yep. And it's his cousins. Yeah. Being a victim of that is a big deal. It was not looked at as being a big deal at all. Oh. Because he definitely does not grow out of it. He probably escalates. Mm-hmm. Despite a lot of people knowing what he did, he's never held responsible for it as a child. And this probably affirmed to him that it was okay to continue doing it as an adult. Well, especially if all the grown-ups when you're a kid know that you do it and nobody's telling you not to, you would think it was as normal as going outside and playing in a tree. Yeah. But Derek's other activities weren't really common of other children either. At a young age, Derek was also caught hurting the puppies of the family dog that it had just given birth to. Oh, no. Melissa. Mm -hmm. He has so many signs already. Yeah. But again, it was just kind of chalked up to Derek being Derek and he didn't know any better. Is there bedwetting and fire? He does wet the bed. Oh, no. And we will get to fire. Really? Mm-hmm. But before that, his unchecked behavior escalated. And on November 8, 1981, just three days after his 13th birthday, Derek was arrested for stealing from and vandalizing the sweet shop, a local candy store. He also attacked a woman right in front of his own mother because she had accused him of peeping on her. What? Mm -hmm. He probably had. Oh, he totally had. This behavior was no big surprise to even the local police department. They were very familiar with Derek's peeping Tom behavior, even at the age of 13. But Derek had a knack for always talking his way out of the trouble and finding an excuse for his behavior and why his actions weren't his fault. So he's learning to manipulate from a young age. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really find any sources that would actually say it, but because of his intellectual disability... He was able to avoid accountability, and that seemed implied in many of the sources that I read. And that is a slippery slope. And in hindsight, we can look at this case and be like, how can you not see all these red flags? But remember, this is in the 80s, and so they don't know everything that we know about serial killers. Right. And that's going to play a large part into that task force that we talked about earlier. Well, and if they're using his intellectual challenges as an excuse and also boys will be boys as an excuse yep. which we saw a lot happening during those times mm -hmm. for the robbery and the vandalism Derek pled guilty and was put just on probation it was his first offense and he didn't know better after all for the mm. peeping Tom complaint it definitely wouldn't be his last by 1984 he had started to venture into St. Francisville and the surrounding areas around his home to peer into women's windows watching them undress and just like when he was a child, none of these violations were ever taken seriously when they were reported. He was just watching after all. He hadn't done any real harm. That is harm. That's a violation. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't viewed that way at that time. At the age of 16, on August 8th, 1985, Derek was arrested again. This time it was for attempted second degree murder. Whoa, that escalated. Mm -hmm. He pulled a knife on another boy at school while in a rage and charged Adam with the intent to kill him. Again, he was released. This is the most bizarre of things to me. I guess the courts just felt like he really couldn't be held responsible for his outburst. And so the charges were actually dismissed. And that's what's so frustrating is when people are not really held criminally responsible, but then nothing is done to prevent more action like this happening. Where are the resources to then help him not do this again? And manage these outbursts, right? Exactly. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't even happen that much now, let alone in the 80s. No. In the same year, he set his own car on fire trying to collect insurance money, but was unsuccessful. His plan was pretty see-through to the police and to the insurance company. 
But again, he wasn't held accountable. There was no charges for anything. Hmm. Yeah, because that should have had some fraud charges in there. Yeah. In the early fall of 1988, Derek met and married Jacqueline Denise Sims. Unfortunately, the marriage was rocky almost from the get-go. Derek was frequently violent towards Jacqueline. Not a big surprise. Mm. And by the spring of the following year, she had filed charges against her husband for physical abuse and threatening to kill her father with a gun. Again, Derek was not held accountable. And Jacqueline stayed with him despite everything. And everything was a lot. In the years to come, Derek would spend a lot of time in and out of the legal system in Louisiana. That is so frustrating when we see that happen. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it happens the most with serial killers where they get these little slaps on the wrist in and out of the system. And it makes you feel like their future victims' lives could have been spared had something different happened during this time. Mm -hmm. I strongly think that all of his victims could have been prevented. Because Derek's rap sheet is lengthy. From disturbing the peace to trespassing to robbery and attempted murder, he was well known by the police department in his area. Yeah, and attempted murder, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. That's not one to sweep under the rug. No. He was rowdy at bars and by this time had taken to entering people's homes like he owned them himself. Sometimes he stole things, but not always. It seemed that he just kind of got off on the thrill of being somewhere he wasn't allowed to be. Ironically, his sneaking into people's homes wasn't that sneaky, and he was often caught in the act. It sounds like he is just escalating and getting more brazen, but he never has a consequence. So he's just learning that I can do whatever I want and nobody can stop me. Yeah, police would be called. They would arrest him. He would spend a couple of days in jail. He'd go through the court system. They decide that he'd go on probation or he'd get a sentence and then it would be suspended and he wouldn't really end up doing any real time. Yeah, it's like a little pat on the tush. There you go. Be a good boy now. Yeah. So in one of these instances, when he was sneaking into people's homes in November 1992, the Zachary resident caught him as he was coming out of their bedroom. Oh, how scary. Mm -hmm. On the spot, Derek makes up this story that he's looking for his friend Monroe, acting like he had just got the wrong house. And they bought it? Well, when the homeowner, Ron, told him, like, uh, I don't know anything about this guy, Monroe. This isn't his house. Derek tried to act all buddy-buddy and apologize, trying to put Ron at ease. Derek kind of picked up on Ron wasn't buying all of this. Derek got defensive and told Ron, I'm not trying to break into your house or anything. (laughs) Even though that's exactly what he was trying to do. Yeah. Ron had two daughters that lived with him at the time, but thankfully nobody was home. But he was scoping the place out. Good thing they weren't there. Mm -hmm. And did he, like often with voyeurism, they'll start to steal like women's underwear, that kind of stuff. Was he doing that at that time? I couldn't find anything in his petty theft charges that were like women's underwear, but he would steal small things from the house. Okay. Mm -hmm. For this offense, it was one of the rare times that Derek would be held accountable, which again to me is just so crazy because this is one of his least violent acts. Yeah. He just got the right judge that time. Mm -hmm. But this kind of thing would happen over and over and over again. Occasionally, he would receive short sentences of hard labor, which always seemed to be reduced from the original term. And then he would be released on probation, usually unsupervised probation. So does that mean he doesn't have to check in with a parole officer? Yeah, he was just on probation. And as long as you don't get caught doing another offense, then you're good to go. 
okay, you're not being monitored, but if you get caught with something else, then you'll be in extra trouble. That's right. Or that's the idea behind it anyway. In some cases, he would hit the jackpot and the charges against him would just be dismissed altogether. For one of his many charges, he was actually ordered to undergo therapy in 1989, but he just never showed up. Oh, and they didn't enforce it. Like no one followed up. No, not at all. But through all this, Derek was learning some really valuable lessons, at least for him. Through his interactions with the law, he was learning how to be charming and how to put people at ease to convince people that he was harmless. So he would appear before these judges and plead his case about how he wasn't a harmful person in society. He was just doing these petty things. (laughs) You're still breaking the law, kid. Mm -hmm. And it was with all these new skills that he kind of developed a different personality. He became this kind of super charming Casanova that could woo almost any woman at the bar, despite having a wife at home. By 1992, he and Jacqueline had had two children, a little boy and a girl. And Derek was reported by some to be a good father that provided for his family. But I think most of those people making those reports were getting their information from Derek. Because I think if anybody had asked Jacqueline, I think the story would be very different. Mm. From his employment records, Derek had difficulty keeping a job. And they frequently had money problems. Derek also spent a lot of time at the local bar schmoozing other women. And Derek wasn't just going after women at the bars. His sense of entitlement and violent outbursts were hitting the next level. In 1993, a teenage couple parked in a cemetery behind the Oak Shadows subdivision hoping for a little lone time on a rainy night. That is exactly the opposite of what they got. Unbeknownst to this couple that were going at it hot and heavy in the back seat... Derek was watching them, and that's not all he wanted to do that night. With him, he carried a long harvesting tool. It was described as being a long cane-like knife that resembled a sword or a machete. As he approached the car in the pouring rain, dressed neatly like he was going out on a night in the town, the girl in the car, Michelle Chapman, saw him open the door. He started hacking at the couple. (gasps) Blood was flying everywhere in the close confines of the car. Both of these victims would be maimed for life. And probably would have died if it had not been for an approaching car. A Zachary police officer had seen the commotion going on in the car illuminated by the car's interior light and had driven up to investigate. So he's seeing it from a distance, watching all of the dark figures move across the light in the car because the car door was open. And he's like, what is going on in the cemetery? Oh, Melissa, this is like exactly like a ghost story. Mm -hmm. There's that one like folklore story about that where the kids go to make out. And the guy with the hook comes scraping on the door. That's what this is giving me right now. And that's what happened. As the Zachary police officer was coming up, though, Derek sees the lights approaching and he fled, leaving his weapon behind. But for some reason, he takes the couple's car keys with him. What? Mm -hmm. Okay, I can't even get over this yet. (laughs) How terrifying. You're hot and heavy in the middle of a makeout sesh in the back seat. And all of a sudden, this man with this big, long blade opens the door and starts hacking at you. The victim, Michelle, she said she was trying to get away. She climbed out of the back seat, tried to get in the front seat, went to start the car, and there's no car keys. Oh, so he is smart. Mm -hmm. He knew to grab them so they couldn't drive away. Yeah. As the officer approached, he thought that he saw something fleeing in the shadows, but Derek would never be officially connected to this crime until years later. Oh, and that is a huge escalation to want to chop the two of them up. Just out of the blue. It was almost like that outburst that he had when he was 16. And this, he was just watching them make out. So he's already being a creep. And then, oh, I'm going to go get them. 
Mm-hmm. Like he's a married father by now with two young kids at home. Gross. That is terrible. But I'm so glad they survived. It was a miracle that that cop showed up when he did. Yeah, that was not by chance. I don't think that couple was meant to die that night. No. But once again, Derek walked away from a crime that he had committed without any repercussions, despite his escalating behavior. Oh. In 1996, Derek's father-in-law died in an explosion at work. As part of the lawsuit settlement, Jacqueline received a quarter of a million dollars. Whoa. Derek took full advantage of his wife's loss and began spending money like crazy. Oh. On fancy clothes, cars, and nights out at the bar. That he's spending on other women. Mm-hmm. But even living the high life wasn't enough to keep him from peeping into other women's windows. The women he was able to pick up in bars weren't the women of his fantasies. On February 19, 1997, around 9 p.m., Derek was spotted in the Oak Shadow subdivision creeping around. He was stopped by a police officer and questioned. Derek made up again another story on the spot about his truck being broken down and about just being on his way to his girlfriend's house to use the phone so he could call the repair guy. When the officer asked him more questions, Derek couldn't come up with the girlfriend's name or exactly where she lived. This was all a little fishy to the officer, so he frisked Derek and found a knife in his front pocket and a pair of work gloves. But because Derek technically wasn't doing anything wrong, the officer drove him back to his truck, which miraculously started right away, and off Derek drove without any further questioning. Hmm. The only reason that this report exists is because the officer had noted that there had been a rash of peeping Tom incidences in the area. And so he noted it down just for interest's sake. Hmm. And it was the peeping Tom. Uh-huh. Or at least one of them. Yeah. On July 31st of the same year, Derek was arrested by Detective David McDavid for six counts of peeping Tom, criminal trespass, and burglary, all in the Oak Shadow subdivision after multiple complaints had been received. In one of these situations, the police had actually chased Derek in his truck up and down Highway 964 in Louisiana and even into the graveyard that he had attacked the couple in, but they lost him. It was only after the conviction that McDavid learned that Derek had also been seen in the same area in February. When he charged him with those six counts, he didn't know the other officer had already stopped him on one account. These six counts were all potential victims that he was stalking. This is just one of the many times that police will come so close to capturing Derek. And it is really sad. How many lives could have been saved had they just kind of put the pieces together? Derek pled guilty to all of these charges and was fined and sentenced to two years of probation and psychological testing. Oh, again with the probation. Are they at least going to follow up on the psychological testing? Well, the testing and therapy that was recommended was to take place over a three-month period. But Derek worked his magic again, and after just two sessions, he had the psychologist write to the judge claiming that Derek had, quote, cooperated fully with the intent of the therapy, and he was sincere and honest. I was pleasantly surprised with the extent to which he is a good verbal therapy participant at this time in his life. The psychologist then told the judge that he was changing his recommendation from the three-month-long therapy to just the two sessions that Derek had already completed. What? You can't even get anything accomplished in two sessions. Your first couple of sessions is usually just talking about what's going on. You're just barely scratching the surface after two sessions. That's what I thought. That must have been some self-reflection that he was sharing to convince that psychologist that, yep, he's good. He understands what he's doing and why he's making these choices. Oh, my goodness. I could see if they were like eight hour long sessions, but I'm sure they weren't. (laughs) No. 
While on probation this time, Derek continued to disregard any of the stipulations put on his freedom. And why not? He had never been held accountable before, to any real extent. And that lack of accountability had dire consequences. He was even able to manipulate a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. who specializes in matters of the mind. And he was able to manipulate him. So he would be feeling invincible at this point in time. And that's why he goes on to do what he does next. Oh, no. On April 19th, 1998, a neighbor of Randy Mabrur called the police about finding Randy's three-year-old wandering the streets of the Oak Shadow subdivision in Zachary all by himself in the late morning. The friend had tried to take the little boy home and look for Randy, but when she saw blood and signs of a struggle inside the house, she left immediately and called the police. Oh, no. So the mom had been attacked and the little boy got out of the house and was just wandering around. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. He had woke up in the morning and his mom was nowhere to be found. Oh. Randy was a nurse manager at the home health company and was a 28-year-old single mom. She was an independent, successful white woman. She had watched a movie with her son the previous night and then went to bed. What happened next, no one really knows. When police entered her home, they found Randy's bedroom disheveled and believe this is where she was first attacked sometime between 10.30 p.m. and 2.30 a.m. It is clear that there was a struggle all the way down the hallway. Along that path, Detective Ray Day finds both her contact lenses lying side by side just inches apart. Police surmise that she was hit so hard from behind that she was knocked to the ground face first and both contacts were dislodged from her eyes. Oh my goodness. That is some force. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. From the kitchen to the carport, blood splatter is the only evidence that they find. And they figure that Randy was picked up and carried into the carport. Further evidence of what happened to Randy is found in the carport trash can. McDavid finds a bouquet of fresh flowers stuffed inside the garbage can. And on the outside of a roll of pink plastic garbage bags, police find a spot of blood and evidence of semen. What happened after Derek got Randy to the carport? No one knows. Her body has never been found. Oh, no. This is the earliest attack that was positively linked to Derek through DNA. Although it would be several years later, because at the time, the higher-ups that were investigating the case decided the price tag for testing the semen sample wasn't worth it. What? This is a murdered woman! Or a presumed murdered woman. Yeah, I had read in one report that the price tag for doing the DNA test was like $6,000. And because they didn't have a body and they were worried about having to prosecute without a body, they decided that it wasn't worth doing the DNA evidence for. Oh my goodness. Shame on them. This is another time where he could have maybe been stopped. Mm -hmm. They had to have had his DNA on file with all those arrests, you would think. They didn't have his DNA on file. Oh my goodness. Nope. But they would have after this first case. Right. And $6,000, you're putting $6,000 as the price on this victim, Mm -hmm. if she's worth it or not. This little boy who's going to grow up without his mom, it was not worth $6,000 to find out what happened to her. Yeah. Isn't that so sad? That really is. Because it sounds like such a violent encounter, him basically kidnapping her, and then we're assuming murdered her. And who knows what else in between. Yeah. For the police, though, this crime scene was eerily familiar to one that they had investigated six years before in the same subdivision. Within sight of Randy's house, 41-year-old Connie Warner had been viciously attacked in her house as well and had also disappeared. On August 23, 1992, Connie's daughter had returned for a weekend away to attend her Louisiana State University orientation. 
she had gone away to LSU. And then when she got back, her mom was just gone. As she walked through her quiet house, she started to notice things that were making her spidey senses go off. Tracy, her daughter, eventually calls her maternal grandfather, Jack Brooks, to come and help her look for her mom and look through the rest of the house. They found what they felt were signs that Connie had not left the house willingly. Beyond the obvious signs of a struggle, of disrupted furniture, the bed was made but disheveled, and there was this ominous splatter of blood on it. There were small amounts of blood in several rooms, and the washer and dryer looked like they had been moved. Hmm. Most disturbing was Connie's glasses were left behind, something that she would never do, because she was pretty much blind without them. In her car, they found vomit in the back seat. Oh. Police put together the scene that Connie had been interrupted while crafting. Police believe that Connie must have opened the door willingly to her assailant because there was no signs of forced entry. An altercation happened near the front door and she was dragged from room to room to the bedroom and then back out again. At one point, they believe she grabbed on to the washer and tried to anchor herself from being pulled from the house and that's why it was pulled out from the wall. Oh. Police surmise that she was placed in the backseat of her own car where she had vomited from the beating that she was taking. Her car was thought to have been used to dispose of her body because her father had recently done an oil change on her car and noted the odometer reading when he changed the oil. When the car was processed by the police, that odometer was found to have the same amount of kilometers that would have accounted for the distance from the house to the place where Connie's body was found two weeks later by a truck driver in a drainage ditch off of Pittsburgh Ave near Capitol Lake. Unfortunately, the successful 41-year-old's new body had been ravaged by Hurricane Andrew as well. And no evidence would remain that would lead to her killer. Oh my goodness. So was the car found there or he brought the car back? He brought the car back. Wow. That just shows how brazen he is to bring it back. He wouldn't have known if they were looking for her by then. When we get into the discussion about his trial, a lot of people argue, was he brazen or was it his low IQ? Well, I think he's brazen. Mm -hmm. Because he's been getting away with it for so long. Why not? Yeah. And maybe didn't want them to find the body. So if I bring the car back, they're not going to know where to look. Yeah. Originally, in this case, the prime suspect was the daughter's boyfriend, Andrew Burgo. In their first statements to police, there were inconsistencies between Tracy and Andre's statements because they had snuck away for the weekend and not been completely honest with Connie. Hmm. And so their lies came out when they were talking to the police and they were kind of telling slightly different stories. Police pressured Andre to confess and didn't pay a lot of attention to the fact that Connie had complained about a peeping Tom about a week before her disappearance and that Andre had seen a black man creeping outside of Connie's bedroom window the Friday night that he had picked up Tracy for their weekend away. Oh, so she had made a report to police. No, not to police. Okay. She had just told friends about it. Okay. Andre said he confronted this man, but the guy just swore and took off. There were police reports that Derek, 23 at the time, was known to frequent the neighborhood peeping into people's windows. He was entertained as a suspect for a moment, but at the time, the boyfriend seemed a more likely match. What? So they even had him as a suspect for this? Mm -hmm. (gasps) Mm-hmm. So this is six years before Randy's murder. Oh, no. Which means there's probably many more murders in between. Yeah. So rather than believe the boyfriend that he had seen this man, they probably thought, oh, no, you're making all of this up. And they wanted to go with him being the murderer. That's right. And so they didn't do any more investigating into Derek. He was on their shortlist as a suspect, but they took him off because the boyfriend to them seemed more likely of a suspect. 
all oh, that's so frustrating. Yeah. And I think at this time, voyeurism was just still regarded as not being a big deal. Remember, this is over 30 years ago, and that kind of behavior was just starting to be linked to more serious crimes. And police already felt like they had this viable suspect who had been caught lying to them. So Connie Warner's murder just went unsolved, much like Randy's. Wow. And so you mentioned that Randy was white. Was Connie white as well? Yes. Because that is actually very uncommon for a serial killer to kill outside of their own race. And we'll get into that when we talk about his profile. Like most serial killers are white men. And so a lot of the victims can be white females. And so police are usually looking more for a white man. Mm -hmm. That's just really unusual. It is. But police do go to Derek's house and question him about Randy's disappearance. And Derek originally gave them consent to look around his house. But as they started digging through his place, he abruptly changed his mind about that permission. He's like, no, you guys need to leave now. This was regarded as being a little odd. But again, that was just Derek. He was a little odd. Police acting on this hunch, though, started to question others about Derek's alibi. A woman, Cassandra Green, who claimed to be his girlfriend, claimed that they had been at the bar until around 10.30 the night before and that they left to go back to her house in Jackson, where he stayed until shortly after 1 a.m., leaving because they had an argument. And going home to his wife and children. That's right. Derek then drove back to his house in St. Francisville and climbed into bed with Jacqueline. Oh, what a dirtbag. Yeah. And so now he's being questioned for two murders. Mm -hmm. Are they not piecing that together? Like we investigated him six years ago on a murder. Yep. And that's why they were questioning him a little bit more about this murder. In this one, there really is no connection other than he's this peeping Tom in this area. But they're like, this looks like a lot like this other murder. And there was a peeping Tom involved in that one, too, making some connections. Jacqueline said that Derek wasn't home when she went to bed, and she hadn't really noticed when he arrived back home, but did confirm that Derek was in bed at 4 a.m. when she woke again. The Oak Shadow subdivision is between the two women's homes. Hmm. And I just have to shake my head because I'm not really sure why Jacqueline stayed with this dirtbag like she does. She had always known Derek had other women on the side. But this is when she learned how serious things were getting with this Cassandra Green woman, calling her his girlfriend and frequently playing house with her. Yeah, that's so sad. Unfortunately, in the 80s, women didn't have a whole lot of options. No. After committing the murder and being outed to your wife about your girlfriend, you think you'd lay low for a little bit. But that just wasn't Derek's style. And maybe it was his lack of intelligence or maybe just his arrogance. Or his lack of consequences. Exactly, about not being held accountable. But you think he would still kind of lie low for a little bit, right? You'd think. Not Derek. There are witnesses, friends of Derek's, that would come forward shortly after this murder and say that Derek was complaining to people about being harassed by the police, mainly David McDavid, because the cop believed he was involved in Randy's murder. How dare the police harass him? Uh, Because you were. Some people even claim that Derek admitted to being involved with the murder. Instead of keeping his mouth shut and not drawing attention to himself, Derek just continued his dual life, causing havoc at home and playing the ladies' man at local bars. Ugh, what a scumbucket. Yeah. 1998 was also the year that the TV show America's Most Wanted aired an episode about the attack in the cemetery. Ooh. McDavid, who had been involved with both Connie and Randy's murder investigations, saw the program and began to suspect Derek of that attack as well. He contacted Michelle and had her come to look at photographs to see if she could identify her attacker from all those years before. She positively ID'd Derek, and this officer was super excited. 
In February 1999, with only six weeks left on the statute of limitations, he charged Derek with the attempted murder of the two teenagers. Wow, good for him. He couldn't physically connect him to the other murders, but he's like, I'm going to get you on this one. Hmm. And so close to the statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the Zachary district attorney felt that the positive ID wasn't enough to prosecute and the charges were dropped. No! Are you serious? Yeah, the rest of the evidence on the weapon was reported to have been lost when it had been dropped in the mud on that rainy night. No! And so they had no other thing other than Michelle saying this many years later, yeah, that was the guy that attacked us. And I know sometimes eyewitnesses are not great, but I'm sure his face was ingrained in her memory. Yeah. This isn't an eyewitness that just saw something out of the corner of her eye or saw something obscure. He was up close and personal and she had scars left from him for the rest of her life. Oh, once again, Derek slipped through police hands. They believed that he had committed the crimes, but they just couldn't tie him to the scenes with any physical evidence to prove that belief. That year, Derek's life got a bit more stressful. Not only did he feel that he was being watched by the Zachary police, but all of Jacqueline's inheritance had been spent by 1999. Oh, man. Derek was essentially now supporting two families, Jacqueline and her two kids and Cassandra and their infant son that Cassandra had just given birth to. My goodness, this guy. The stress and money problems were a big hit on Derek's ego. With money, he had been the big man on campus with flashy clothes and cars, flaunting what he felt was prestige. When the money ran out, he just couldn't return to his former lifestyle. He ended up being in even worse shape financially than he had been before and having to work even harder at jobs that he couldn't seem to keep. And when life got hard for Derek, he returned to his favorite pastime. On August 19, 1999, the St. Francisville police received three different complaints about a man stalking women in their apartment complex. All of them ID'd Derek as that man. Colette Walker-Dwyer told police on two different occasions Derek had entered her apartment without invitation. During one occasion, he walked up to her while she was unlocking the door, and when she opened the door to go inside, he just walked in right after her and helped himself to a drink. How scary. And while he was in her house, he repeatedly asked her out. He was particularly interested in if she would date a black man. When he picked up on the kind of vibe that she was nervous to have him in her apartment, He tried putting her at ease by telling her that if he wanted to rape her, he could have already done it. Oh my goodness. And you think this is going to make a woman want to go out on a date with you? Yeah. The only way that she could get him to leave was by leaving the apartment herself. Oh, hey. And there was another time that he just let himself into her apartment. And again, pretty much asking the same questions like, you know, do you find me attractive? And he even turns off the light at one point. And she's like, uh, nope. And turns back on the light. Wow. Another time he was spotted by a neighbor of Colette's just lurking outside of her apartment. Like that's stalking Mm -hmm. and home invasion. Like that is so many things. I can't even imagine how scary for her. Just so wrong. It's like it has nothing to do with how attractive you are. I'm having all these red flags because you're a creep. Well, and Colette would later go on to say that she felt like he was a serial killer. And so she reported him to police. And police did nothing. Well, again, it happens where he goes in, he gets a little bit of a sentence, it gets reduced. He's back on probation, which uh, he's never off of probation, but they never throw him back in jail. It's so odd. And that's what I never understand with probation. Like when you break your probation, shouldn't you be back in jail with no more probation? Mm Mm-hmm. 
All the time that Derek was looking at these other women, Jacqueline just ignored it. If he was picked up by the police for doing it and spent a short period of time in jail, it was almost like a vacation for her. She was just happy that he wasn't at home. Oh, because he was abusing her too, you said. Yeah. These times were kind of welcome for her. Yeah. She was just another one of his victims. Unfortunately for Derek, Cassandra wasn't as agreeable as his wife to his lifestyle choices, and they began to argue and fight frequently. In February of 2000, their fighting escalated, and she filed paperwork to get a protective order against Derek. But before anything was finalized, he beat her severely in the parking lot of a bar that they had just been at. Derek dragged Cassandra from the bar and beat her until she was a bloody mess, kicking and stomping on her when she was on the ground. Oh, and And he's a big guy. Like, you Mm -hmm. showed me a picture of him, and he's got a lot of girth to back him up. Yeah, and he does physical labor. He works in construction. He's a pipe fitter. He is a fit guy. Yeah, like, he looks like he's a little built. Mm -hmm. Another man tried to intervene and stop Derek from attacking Cassandra, and Derek became so enraged that he put his fist through this guy's expedition window and then just fled the scene. Oh, my goodness. A chase ensued, and Derek drove through a police roadblock, nearly running down a police officer. These charges were all a little bit harder to get off of, and Derek was sentenced to two years, but would actually only spend the next year in prison. That's a really light sentence for attempted first-degree murder. Yeah, you've, like, literally almost beaten one of the mothers of your children to death, Mm -hmm. and you're going to spend a year. Yeah. And really what it sounds like is that all the new charges were kind of dropped and the only thing that held him in jail was the breach of his previous probation. No way. Mm-hmm. When he was released from prison in 2001, after only serving nine months, he was placed on house arrest, but he frequently removed his monitoring equipment. Instead of having his bail revoked again, he smooth-talked his way out of returning to prison and got the equivalent of a slap on the wrist. Oh, this is so frustrating. Uh Uh-huh. So many times they could have caught him. Like, why even do that? Why even put him under house arrest? If he can break it and have no consequences. Yeah. Throughout all of his relationship troubles, Derek continued to spy on women, and these women had all similar attributes. Unlike his wife and girlfriend... The women he spied on all had lighter skin with dark eyes and dark hair. That was his type. They were all successful and all appeared to have their lives together. Hmm. Do we ever find out? Is there a specific woman that he's hung up on to make him target this specific victim type? So there are psychologist reports later on through the trial that talk about how his upbringing and being segregated led him to desire the things that he couldn't have as a child. Like he wasn't allowed to have the white teacher. For him, it was viewed that whites were more prestigious and he was always after this prestige. And so that's why he wanted to dominate white women. Right. And I wonder if because there's such a array of different type of looking white women, Mm -hmm. for him to be so specific about the dark eyes and the dark hair, like I wonder if there was a teacher that he admired or wanted as his teacher or like I wonder why he got hung up on that specific appearance of a white woman. Yeah, that would be interesting to learn. But in the psychology report, it didn't say that there was a particular woman. They just felt that that was maybe what led him to choose this victim type. Okay. There Mm -hmm. was something about that look that triggered him. Yeah. And there was kind of indications like when he was talking to Colette, he was like, well, you're a white woman. Would you ever want to date a black man? And she's like, yeah, sure, but not you. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Through several of his interactions, he was always pointing out the differences. Well, because he had experienced that segregation and that racism. From Mm -hmm. a young age. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that plays a huge role into his capture. 
or his non-existent capture for a long time. Yeah. So on September 23rd, 2001, the urge to kill overtook Derek again. 41-year-old Gina Wilson-Green was an attractive and successful registered nurse who lived on Stamford Ave in East Baton Rouge, an address near LSU. She was described as being outgoing, vivacious, and full of life. In the weeks leading up to her death, she had shared with her ex-husband Mark that she was feeling uneasy in her home but just couldn't pinpoint the reason why. She had mentioned to both Mark and her mother that she felt like she was being watched. Oh, that's so creepy. Yeah, it is. She was being watched by this dirtbag. She was. She was found dead in her bed on the 24th. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Like the other two women, she was white, and just like their homes, there was no sign of forced entry. But inside, the home told a completely different story. And this is the first time that they have a body that will give them some evidence, right? That's right. There were clear signs of a struggle throughout the home and down the hallway to the bedroom. Her clothes and earrings were found strewn about and her shoes were found in two different rooms. Mm. Police found that her purse and cell phone were missing along with the shorts that she was believed to have been wearing. With the assistance of her cell phone provider, Singular Wireless, police were able to locate the items a few weeks later along with a towel that they believed had come from Gina's home. They were found dumped behind a warehouse on Choctaw Street in Baton Rouge. The same DNA profile was collected from the elbow of her blouse, her denim shorts, and the towel. So they did find this DNA profile, and they did test it. Originally, Mark, the ex-husband, was the prime suspect, but he was quickly eliminated as such. And at the time, there were no other suspects to test the DNA against. So it was put into storage, and her death received very little press in East Baton Rouge, because at the time, it was only two weeks after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and newspapers and news media were all preoccupied. Oh, the world was overwhelmed at that time. Mm -hmm. And so her death wasn't in the media a lot. That was unfortunate timing. Mm -hmm. On January 14th, 2002... Geraldine DeSoto met Derek. The young, attractive 21-year-old LSU student had just come home to the Adidas Trailer Park in West Baton Rouge. She had just paid her next semester's fees and was preparing to go for a job interview. It's believed that she was murdered between noon and 2 p.m. when Derek happened upon her while traveling to pick up his paycheck from work. A call was placed from Geraldine's phone during the time frame of the murder to the area code where Derek was picking up his paycheck from. He was probably just being his courteous self, you know, just letting the office know he was running a little late. He just had something to do. Yeah, sorry I got held up. I'm actually murdering someone right now, but I'll be there as soon as I can. To pick up my paycheck. Oh, and in the middle of the day, Mm -hmm. like broad daylight. A boot print was found at the scene. And the door was found slightly ajar. But other than that, there were no signs of forced entry. There were obvious signs of a struggle in the house. Geraldine had fought to the bitter end. Derek beat her over the head with a phone and stabbed her three times. While injured, she fought to get away and ran towards the bedroom where her husband kept a shotgun. She was able to get the gun before Derek descended on her and in a blind rage cut her throat from ear to ear. (gasps) And then started stomping on her. So she never got to shoot him? Nope. Oh. But they know that she had the gun in her hands. Oh, I cannot even imagine. No. Because even just grabbing that gun, you'd have a little bit of hope, but it would be so panic-stricken that it would be even hard to function in that moment. Yeah. Geraldine was found by her husband when he came home from work around 7 that night. Once again, the husband was the prime suspect. This time, there was a history to support that suspicion. Darren DeSoto had been known to beat his young wife and was overly possessive. 
co-workers pointed out that on the day of the murder, that Darren hadn't made any calls to his wife in the afternoon, which was completely out of character for him because he was constantly checking up on her. Mm. Darren would say that he had just been distracted at work and hadn't realized the time passing. Darren eventually would be cleared by DNA evidence found underneath Geraldine's fingernails during autopsy. She had fought for her life and collected evidence that would identify her killer. Darren's DNA was found, but only in small, insignificant amounts. Good for her for fighting. Mm -hmm. Another individual, the murderer, was the major contributor. At the time, though, police had no clue who that could be, because this is outside of Zachary, where the police have caught on to him. Oh, no. And he's going from area to area now. Last time it was East Baton Rouge. This time it's West Baton Rouge. And these are all different parishes. So the police departments aren't connected. Oh, that's really unfortunate. Because had they been, they could be like, oh, he's wanted over here. He was looked into for this crime or charged for this. Yeah. Unfortunately, the sample under Geraldine's fingernails had been overwhelmed by her own DNA as she had grabbed at her own throat. So a full profile couldn't be created. But she had tried to staunch her own blood flow. And in that, all of her blood had become mixed with the skin fragments underneath her fingernails. The Louisiana Crime Lab instead relied on the YSTR DNA test that looks at the DNA on only the male Y chromosome. What they found was a very unique profile on that Y chromosome that wasn't shared by a lot of people in the world. Hmm. And so they knew that once they had a sample to compare this to, that they would be able to identify him. Mm -hmm. But Derek's profile still isn't on any database. Oh, man. Derek continued to escalate despite the added pressure of police closing in on his DNA. On May 31st, 2002, Charlotte Murray Pace, who went by Murray, washed her new BMW and returned home to get ready to leave on an out-of-town trip to go to a friend's wedding. Murray was a beautiful, smart 22-year-old that had just graduated from LSU, one of the youngest students to ever receive an MBA degree. Oh, her whole life in front of her. Mm -hmm. His victims are quite young. Well, they kind of range from the 20s to the 40s. Yeah, I guess so. And that was why police had a hard time kind of distinguishing which ones were his victims, because he does have a broad range. Hmm. When her friend Rebecca arrived at her Charlotte townhome to pick her up around 2 p.m., she found Murray on the floor between the bedroom door and the bed. The bed was made, but completely soaked in blood. Rebecca, unable to find the townhouse portable phone, used her cell to call 911 and then flagged down a passing police officer. When police investigated the crime scene, they found no signs of forced entry. And once again, it was evident that Derek's victim had tried to fight him off all over the house. A clothing iron was found in pieces near Murray's body, and the heating element was covered in blood. Mm -hmm. The handle and the cord were missing, along with the house's phone. Murray had only lived in the house for two days when she was murdered. Oh no. Before moving, she had lived just three doors down from Geraldine. Oh my goodness. It seems like he's going door to door. Yeah. Like as he's murdering one, he notices the next one. Or even while he's stalking the one, he probably is like, okay, I'll do her next. I'll get this one done and then I'll move on yeah. to her. And he followed her to her new house. Yeah. Like the other crime scenes, personal items were found missing. Murray's brown Louis Vuitton wallet and the keys to her BMW were gone along with her cell phone. But police were able to find a footprint from a Rawlings athletic shoe that was approximately size 10 to 11. So its size matched the other footprint that they had found. Murray's autopsy revealed that she had received four blunt force injuries to her face and head that had fractured her skull, and then she had been stabbed over 80 times with two different weapons, a knife and a flat-headed screwdriver. 
80 times, mm-hmm. that is rage-filled. Yeah. And they think that it might have been so rage-filled because she fought back so hard. Yeah. Her cause of death was exsanguination. Swabs were collected from Murray's exposed body. Her breast, buttocks, and inner thighs all captured DNA profiles that again proved to be very unique. One in 3.6 quadrillion. Whoa. Yeah, I'd say that's unique. Mm-hmm. The investigative team for Murray's death ran the sample through the database they had, and at the time, there was no match that was found. There was also no connection made between the murderer and the emergency call that had been placed just the day before from a neighbor that had reported a black man wearing only tube socks, masturbating in his vehicle while watching the Charlotte apartment building. She had provided an accurate description of Derek, but the West Baton Rouge police force wasn't as familiar with Derek as the Zachary police force, and he, again, evaded detection. This is so frustrating, Melissa. Oh, it's going to get so much more frustrating. Left unchecked, Derek struck again in Brewbridge, 45 minutes west of Baton Rouge, on July 9th, not even six weeks after he had viciously murdered Murray. But by some miracle, this woman would live to tell the tale. Oh, good. From her lived experience, we gain insight into how Derek was able to enter so many women's homes with no signs of forced entry, and the games that he tried to play. Diane Alexander was an attractive nurse who had enjoyed a rare morning off and was making lunch and heading into work when there was a knock at her front door. Remember, by this time, media and police were telling everyone to keep their doors locked and be wary of strangers. Mm -hmm. When she opened the front door, there was Derek, all clean-shaven and nicely dressed, introducing himself as Anthony. He fed her a story about looking for directions to the Montgomery's, a house where he was supposed to be doing some work. When Diane said that she didn't know the family, Derek, posing as the gentlemanly Anthony, asked to borrow her phone so that he could check his information. And this was pre-cell phone age where you could just Google the address. Pre-smartphone age. (laughs) Yeah, I guess smartphone. (laughs) Yeah, because they did have cell phones. So being a little cautious, but still wanting to be kind, Diane handed over her cordless phone and phone book to Derek on the porch and then went back inside, closing the door behind her. After a few minutes, she went back to collect her phone, and that's when Derek struck up a conversation about the gospel music that he could hear playing from her kitchen, telling her that he sang in the choir. Trying to lure her into a conversation, he begins to ask Diane if her husband might know the Montgomery's that he is looking for. But Diane, who is cooking lunch and has to get to work, is getting a little bit impatient with the stranger that just doesn't seem to be taking the hint that she really doesn't want to talk to him. Yeah. She responds to his question with, look, my husband is not home. Oh, he was just fishing for that. Mm-hmm. That's when Derek's demeanor changed and he pushed his way into her mobile home, grabbing her by the throat and threatening her with a knife. Mm. Diane says that he pushed her down on the floor and told her that he had been watching her. Oh, my goodness. He is literally what nightmares are made out of. Mm-hmm. From Diane's account, he tried to rape her, but he had difficulty because he couldn't get an erection. When that happened, he flew into even more of a rage and started beating her. He then cut a cord from her phone and started to strangle her. As Diane fought for her life, she was able to get her fingers between the cord and her throat, buying herself some time. As she was passing in and out of consciousness, her son Herman happened to arrive home. He noticed an unfamiliar car in the driveway, a Mitsubishi Eclipse, with a Hampton Hazard plate on the front and a dent on the hood. When Derek heard him in the driveway, he took off fleeing out the back door, but not before stomping his full force down on Diane's stomach. Herman found his mum on the living room floor in a pool of blood with a fractured skull. 
He leaves his mother and jumps back into his car and chases Derek, who is fleeing in his own vehicle. What? Mm-hmm. During this chase, Herman is able to identify a tan phone cord dangling out the car window. <gasps> the attempted murder weapon. Uh-huh. The police are called and they take Diane's dress that has sweat DNA on it and a piece of the cut phone cord into evidence. Both will be critical pieces of evidence later in the trials. It takes Diane five days in hospital to recover enough to work with police to identify her assailant. On July 15th, she was able to give a detailed description of her attacker to the St. Martin Parish Sheriff's Office. So again, this is another district. But in those five days, the case would take a turn in Derek's favor. No, quit saying that. I know. Before we go on to what happens next, I think there are a few things to unpack from this attack. First of all, not being able to perform sexually. I started to wonder, had he started to need violence to get off? Or was he having sex with the bodies after death? Ooh, that's a gory thought. It is a gory thought. But I thought how interesting that he was trying to rape her but couldn't. That is true. And so why couldn't he? By Cassandra and Jacqueline's reports, he never had a problem. Well, and we do know with any type of perpetrator, they need more and more stimulation. And that's why they escalate because what did it for them before does not do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so he was holding her down and he wasn't actually brutally stabbing her. And both of his crimes just prior to this had been vicious, bloody attacks. Right. Where the woman had fought back brutally. So he wasn't getting that violent stimulation this time. Well, I wonder if that's what it was. Could be. And after almost getting caught, this will be the last time that Derek leaves a woman in her home. After this, he starts to take them to other locations. And I think that maybe Herman walking in kind of shakes his confidence a little. Or maybe it causes him to be a little bit more careful. Yeah, I could see that. He seems to kind of be regressing and going back to what he was doing originally by taking the women out of their house. Yeah. So I think he had just gotten so comfortable like, oh, I can just do this right in their home. I don't have to be bothered. And now he's a little spooked. I think that's what happens. Just three days later, though, Derek attacked another woman. Three days later? Because he hadn't been able to finish. And so I think that drive just pushed him even more. Yeah, he'd still have that itch and it would be even stronger. Right. And remember, Diane's report didn't come out until five days after. So he actually commits another crime in between. And this one is quite Mm. significant. Just three days later, Derek attacked Pam Kinnamore, a beautiful 44-year-old antique shop owner. Her husband returned to their Briarwood Place home around 11.45 p.m. and found Pam's keys in the front door. Pam had a habit of forgetting her keys when she unlocked the door, so this wasn't a huge alarm bell for him. It was just kind of one of her idiosyncrasies. But we know that he will sometimes follow women right in as they're entering their home. Yeah. So that tells me he was waiting for her. He definitely knew enough to be at the house. How does he even have time for a wife and kids and job and girlfriend and kid? And doing all this. Yeah, and to be able to stalk women enough to know their patterns and their schedules. Well, remember, Jacqueline doesn't like him when he's at home. She never questions when he's away from home. Yeah, but still. It is mind-boggling how Mm -hmm. he does all of these things. So when Pam's husband enters their home, he finds their living room is completely disheveled. And the bathtub is full. And there are spots of blood on the bedroom rug. And Pam is nowhere to be found. She has just vanished. That's a new thing, the bathtub being full. Police believe that Pam was actually in the bathtub. She oh, had... so then she probably had left her keys in the... Yeah, it sounds like she actually had left her keys in the oh, front door. Okay, so he hadn't necessarily walked in right behind her. No, but he knew enough to be watching this house. 
Yeah. Or maybe he just happened to be going by and saw keys in the front door. But then how would you know only a woman was home? And one that meets your profile. He had to have known. He had to have been watching her. When Pam was found, it was by a survey crew just south of the Whiskey Bay exit on Interstate 10 on the border of Baton Rouge and Lafayette. Her body, beaten and exposed to the heat and the elements, was unrecognizable. Her autopsy showed that before she died, Pam had put up a fight. She had defensive injuries on her hands, left arm, and knees. The report concluded that she had been strangled with a telephone cord and had three knife wounds across her neck ranging from four to five and a half inches in length. He'd almost decapitated her. Oh, that's so brutal. It was also found that she had been raped vaginally and anally. Unfortunately, the DNA collected was not a full profile, but was enough to be matched partially if they had another sample to compare it to. With little evidence to go on, police ask the public for help, and witnesses start calling in tips. A woman claimed to have seen a white pickup truck driving westbound on Interstate 10 about 3 a.m. on July 13th. The woman thought that she had seen Pam's body in the truck slumped over in the passenger seat. The driver was slight in build and pulled off of Whiskey Bay exit, close to where the remains were found. The concerned citizen had described the truck as a white GMC or a Chevy single cab truck with a fish symbol on the rear left side of the truck and the partial license plate had been JT341. This witness's testimony was further collaborated with more witnesses. Another reported a white man acting suspiciously. A woman came forward and said that she had been coerced into a white pickup truck on the I-10 two days after the disappearance and was raped before being let go. Police released a sketch of Pam's suspected killer based on these two women's eyewitness accounts. A white male with a slight build driving a white pickup truck. Uh, and we're looking for a stocky black man. Uh Uh-huh. This person became who everyone was looking for. Oh, and this is definitely not who they're looking for. No. This is a different dirtbag. A different dirtbag. Oh. They had just kind of meshed a whole bunch of witnesses' stories and created this profile of a white man. By the end of July 2002, it was becoming very clear that Louisiana had a serial killer on their hands and that police from different parishes were going to have to work together to solve the case. If only they hadn't let their egos get in the way, it might have gone a little better. What? Yeah. You will not believe this next part. They're going to let their flippin' egos get in the way of solving this case? That's what's going to happen. The Baton Rouge Area Multi-Agency Task Force was created, and they started connecting murders that had been happening all over Louisiana. In a meeting hosted by the Baton Rouge Police Department, the investigators collaborated over the killer that they were now calling the Baton Rouge Killer. They even collaborated with the FBI to have a profile of the serial killer done. In that meeting, David McDavid from the Zachary Police presents the profile of the local pervert Derek Todd Lee and the three cases that he felt were connected to him. Connie's, Randy's, and the attempted murder of the couple in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And he's the only one on the right track. No one listened to him. Oh, listen to David McDavid. If you have an <laughs> iconic name like David McDavid... You should be heard. Yeah. All had made up their mind already that the serial killer was white. Derek didn't fit the profile based on the color of his skin. And that's what we have to understand is just because it's not the usual profile, just because this typically would be a white man, it doesn't mean it always is. And you can't make the evidence fit into your little tiny box. But that's exactly what they did. Oh. 
tempers and egos must have flared pretty big at this meeting because from that point on, the Zachary Police Department would not be a part of this task force. So they weren't ever even participating in the task force after this. And yet they're the ones on the right track. So then they basically like pouted. Well, if you're not going to listen to us, then we're not going to play. Yeah, they were going to do their own thing. Oh. Egos. Yeah. But before we call the police egomaniacs and having a contest of mine is bigger than yours, I think there are a few things to point out about this investigation that kind of swayed things against them. At the time that Derek was racking up deaths in Louisiana, there were actually three and some say four other serial killers operating at the same time. That is true. There was a reason it earned the title serial killer capital. Witnesses were also making claims about this white man. Yeah. Derek was, for the most part, killing white or women with lighter complexions, which is, like you said, is atypical of most serial killers that are studied. Most serial killers kill within their own ethnic group. Mm -hmm. What was also making things difficult was Derek varied his method of killing. And so the crimes that the Zachary police were presenting didn't necessarily match the crimes in the different areas. Usually a serial killer uses one method of killing as their signature, a way to claim their crimes. And lastly, the gold standard, the profile from the FBI claimed the killer would be white. And I'm guessing that this was based on the fact that the majority of serial killers are white and based on the victim type. Mm -hmm. You can see how they would draw that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they said, yeah, see it, McDavid. Huh. But at this point, too, like they're coming together. Did they not compare their DNA profiles and all of that stuff? So they start to put that together, but it takes time to run DNA tests. Okay. This profile that the FBI had given the task force made several other inferences about the killer's behavior. The profile suggested the killer was male, between 25 and 35 years old. They believed he might be physically strong due to his ability to lift the bodies of deceased women and carry them over unstable terrain such as the muddy areas that they had been in. He probably worked in a job that required such strength. Investigators believed that it was highly likely the killer earned a below average or average income. He probably worked in a position that required little social interaction with other people. Derek had held various jobs in construction and pipe fitting that would meet these descriptions. Yeah, it sounds like they're bang on with everything else. Mm -hmm. There was evidence to suggest that the murderer was able to obtain information about his victims before he abducted them. So this is still part of the profile. It appeared that he had knowledge concerning the woman's lifestyles and schedules and may have stalked them. The four murders were probably planned, even though the killer showed signs of impulsivity, which may bring him to the attention of police for minor offenses check he was known by police yeah all of it is check 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 except for Mm -hmm. his ethnic background i had read in one of the reports that criticized this task force after the fact that most killers are known to police within the first 30 days is that true that was one of the stats that i had read which is fascinating that is yeah sometimes their profile isn't paid attention to well and sometimes they come back to the crime scene sometimes they even show up at the candlelight vigils for victims or join the search force for them which is always so disturbing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, could, I guess I could see how that would be true. The behavioral analyst also suggested that the killer was insecure and had difficulty interacting with women, especially those who portrayed themselves as sophisticated. Women he approached might have described him as being awkward but harmless. He may have crossed the line with some women he knew, those in whom he had developed an intense interest, which I said kind of a check because he had these kind of two personalities when it came to women. 
with women at the bars that he was interacting with, he was like this Casanova. He was picking them up like crazy. So I have to ask, were those women black women? Like, did he want to only date black women and then target white women? It seemed that way. Yeah. So he was quite comfortable and in his element talking to women who were black. Mm -hmm. And so that's where he was putting on the charm. And because it sounds like he was quite the ladies man. He was. But then when he went up to these other women that he viewed as being more sophisticated. And maybe forbidden fruit. That's right. Then he was a little bit more awkward. But he always did try to present himself as being harmless. He tells them these awkward statements of, well, I could have raped you, but, you know, I haven't. So I'm really harmless. Right. And do you find me attractive? Would you date a black man? Mm -hmm. The decision was made by the task force to release that profile to the public. And it further perpetuated the belief that the killer was white. This would allow Derek to continue murdering women. He probably was like laughing when he saw that. Mm -hmm. On November 21st, 2002, while the police were testing DNA of thousands of white men, Tunisia Janae Cole, an attractive 23-year-old, disappeared. Police found her car, a black 1994 Mazda, around 1.30 p.m. near the St. Landry Parish Cemetery, where it was believed that she had been visiting her mother's grave. Aww. Her mom had died just seven months before, and Tunisia was not coping well with this loss. She would duck out of work and just spend hours sitting by her mom's grave. It was believed that Derek might have used her sadness to lure into his vehicle because there were no signs of a struggle at the gravesite. Her keys remained in the ignition of her car. So she wasn't planning on leaving with him. No. Three days later, her half-naked body was found dumped in the woods about 32 kilometers or 20 miles from the cemetery by a rabbit hunter. She had died by blunt force trauma to the head and had been sexually assaulted. Derek took Trinisha's ring, but left behind DNA and another footprint at the scene, an Adidas-type basketball shoe that was again size 10 to 11, just like the one found at the Murray's crime scene. And the other one as well. Mm -hmm. This is now three footprints. Yeah. The same size. About a month after her death, finally, DNA results were starting to file in from the different crime scenes, and it's confirmed that the DNA collected from Tunisia, Gina, Murray, and Pam were all from the same individual. Unfortunately, there was still no profile to match it to, though. On March 3rd, 2003, Derek claimed the life of his last known victim. Carrie Lynn Yoder, a 26-year-old LSU student, was unloading groceries from her car into her home at 4250 Dodson Ave home a few kilometers from where Gina and Marie lived. That night, she talked to her boyfriend and told him that she was going to the Winn-Dixie for groceries, and that was the last time she was heard from. The boyfriend drove by her home the next day and saw that her car was in the driveway and that there were lights on in the house. So when she wasn't responding to his messages, he just kind of felt like she was ignoring him. But by the next day, she still hadn't responded to any of his messages, and he got worried and decided to go to her house again. He found the back door open and Carrie's keys, purse, and cell phone all on the counter. Hmm. He immediately called the police. And that's so sad that he didn't go in the first day. I know. She was already gone by that point, but at least right. it would have been one day closer to catching Derek. Yeah. Police found the key holder at the front door was dangling on only one screw, a broken necklace, and a small amount of blood on Carrie's purse. That's hmm. all they found at the house. An intensive search began, including aerial surveillance. But it was too late. Carrie's body was found on March 13th by a man fishing for crawfish in a Chafalaya River basin near where Pam's body had been found just eight months earlier. Oh. She had been raped, beaten, strangled, 
and stomped on. Oh, the stomping. That's so vicious. Yeah. Later during the trial, it was shown that Derek had made two calls on his prepaid cell phone around 10 p.m. on March 3rd from the area that the body was found in. In April, Derek returns to his old stomping ground and the Zachary Police Department starts receiving complaints about someone peeping in the windows back in Oak Shadow subdivision and stalking women on their early morning jogs. And David McDavid is like, I know who that is. <laughs> yep. And task force or not, the local police department are determined to get Derek Lee in jail. They believe that he is the serial killer and they eventually convince a judge that they have enough probable cause to collect a DNA sample from Derek to prove it. They use a subpoena order instead of a warrant, and that becomes a point for appeal later on because they don't have the correct paperwork, but it is upheld. On May 5th, 2003, Danny Mixon finds Derek at home in his St. Francisville and presents him with the subpoena for his DNA. After reading through the order, Derek submits to the testing, but no arrest is made. They actually have to wait patiently for the test results to come in. Which gives him opportunity to flee if he wanted to. Uh-huh. In the meantime, the task force is continuing its own investigation and rethinks the whole white bat rouge killer. The rethinking was based on a few reasons. On March 3rd, DNA test results come back and investigators learn that the DNA suggests a black suspect. Just two days after, they decide to release the composite drawing that Diane had given police on July 22nd, the previous year after surviving her attack. They hadn't connected her to the serial killings because she had drawn a black man. And before her drawing came out, the witnesses for Pam's murder had said it was a white man. So they were just tunnel vision on a white man. Mm -hmm. The sketch was updated on May 22nd and re-released on May 23rd of 2003 to the public. And tips started rolling in. Almost 1,800 of them. Whoa. Tips about all of Derek's peeping Tom activities and ones that linked the car that Herman had seen driving away from his mother's attack directly to Derek. The description of the car matched Jacqueline's car. They had even received tips that had said contact the Zachary Police Department for more information about the guy that they had been trying to catch for years. Oh my goodness. And there was a little bit of backlash saying that that was one of the Zachary Police calling it into the task force tip line. Oh. <laughs> but that was never confirmed. <laughs> that would be very cheeky if it, it was. was. I think it was totally cheeky. <laughs> But it just shows like how much chaos and destruction Derek has left in this path, like how many victims he has. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's so many, especially peeping Tom and maybe even rape or whatever he escalated to that we don't even know about. Yeah, there's seven that are believed to be his victims, but they can't actually tie them to them. And we'll talk about Connie Warner's case. I put that in there because it was a, a firm connection, but DNA actually doesn't exist for that one. Right. On May 25th, the task force released the information that the DNA collected from Derek is a match to the five Baton Rouge murders that the task force has been investigating. It would take some time before DNA connected Geraldine's and even more time before the archived evidence from Randy's case was connected to him. Finally, the dirtbag Derek's goose is cooked. All that's left to do is to find him. Because like you said, he's had a whole month. Yeah. If I was him, I'd be sitting on a beach in Mexico by now. Well, he's not that smart. On the same day that his DNA was collected, Derek went into a kind of hiding. He sent his wife and kids away and he took off to Chicago, but then returned to Baton Rouge like one day later. What? Yeah, it was really weird. And then he took off again to Atlanta. In Atlanta, Derek didn't really keep a low profile. He was ID'd at the Lakewood Motor Lodge where he was staying in Georgia. 
While there, he was acting like the king of barbecues, making grilled chicken for new friends and being his old charming self with the ladies and had everyone there fooled. And it just kind of makes me feel like he had no remorse. Like I can just go make new friends, schmooze, cook chicken. It's just a party. Yeah. Despite being known by the locals, it still took police three tries to capture him at three different locations when they were tipped off to where he was. Police caught their first big break when they just happened to be at his girlfriend Cassandra's house when Derek made a call to her from Atlanta. So Mm. that's how they figure out he's in Atlanta. From there, they were able to broadcast Derek's description and people started calling in about seeing him. They're like, hey, this dude just cooked me chicken. That's right. Police tried to capture him at a homeless shelter at the motel, and eventually they find him at a tire shop. Finally, when a trio of Atlanta police approached Derek outside of Green's Tire Service on May 27th, they asked him for his ID, and he presented his Louisiana work permit with no fuss and was taken into custody without incident. Wow. So if he was found at a tire shop, did like a pedestrian call in a tip? Yep. Because otherwise, like, how would they find him there? Oh, well, good for that bystander for doing that. Yeah, but it took them three times because somebody would say, oh, he's here. And the police would, by the time they got there, he was already gone. But he shopped a little too long at the tire shop. That's right. Good. Finally. And Melissa, if he gets a slap on the wrist, I'm flipping this table. I don't care that all our equipment is on it. I'm flipping it and walking out the room. Well, and a lot of people, they made a a big deal about like, oh, he just went with them. He didn't even put up a fuss or a fight. And I'm thinking, yeah, because he's been taken into custody how many times? And he's never been held accountable. So why wouldn't you just go with them? Yeah, he's not worried about it. He thinks he's going to be out next week. That's right. Grilling more chicken. Originally, he was accused of a lot more murders than we have talked about today because he was attributed to murders committed by Sean Grillis. But DNA ruled him out of those killings. Interestingly, Sean Grillis was the white serial killer who many would have been calling in about. Huh. It's just so bad that they were happening at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. One serial killer is too many, let alone two to five in that same area. Yeah. Derek never confessed to police about any of the murders. In the interrogation, he just talked around in circles and acted confused about how DNA evidence worked to capture him. And honestly, listening to his interrogation is so difficult because he just talks in circles. Derek's trial proceedings began on July 17th with a motion to change venues, which was denied. The denial would later be a part of Derek's appeals to his convictions. In August, Derek was put on trial for Geraldine DeSoto. He was less than helpful to his crown-appointed defender. They actually fought during the trial. (laughs) Just four days later, 11 out of 12 jurors found him guilty of secondary murder, and he was sentenced six days after that to life in prison without the eligibility of parole, probation, or suspension of sentence which I thought was hilarious that the judge put that all in there because those are all the things that had got him out of his previous sentences. Yeah, good for that judge. So he's like, nope, you can't have parole, you're not going on probation, and you're not getting a suspended sentence. Yeah, I'm crossing all my T's and dotting all my I's. Thank you very much. Yeah. Next, Derek was put on trial for the first-degree murder of Charlotte Murray Pace in October of 2004. On October 12th, after deliberating 80 minutes, the jury reached a unanimous guilty verdict. Derek didn't flinch when the verdict was read, but as he was escorted out of the courtroom, he told everyone, God don't sleep, and they didn't want to tell you about the DNA they took eight times, referring to his claim that the police framed him with DNA evidence. Oh my goodness. And God don't sleep, is that meaning like God will give me justice, God Uh will clear my name? Yeah. I think God's got different plans for you, honey. And it's not clear in your name. Just saying. I'm not to judge, but it might turn out a little differently for you than you think. (laughs) 
At the sentencing hearing in December 2004, the jury had to decide if Derek was eligible for the death penalty based on his claims of having an intellectual disability. Mm. According to the Supreme Court, a person that has an IQ below 70 must be exempt from the death penalty. His was above 70, though, wasn't it? Well, we'll talk about it. Originally? Yeah. That's where it kind of averaged. Okay. In Louisiana, the jury decides competency. And they heard evidence from both sides to decide if he was eligible for the death penalty. The defense argued that Derek had always had a low intelligence, citing his lowest testing scores of 62 and 65. Because remember, all through school, he had been tested. Right. On multiple different subjects, multiple different years. And so he, he had a lot of testing done. But shouldn't it go with his current IQ during the times of the murder? They pulled in everything. Okay. The defense argued that with his low IQ, Derek had difficulty making decisions and understanding the seriousness of his crimes. The prosecution presented witnesses that claimed that his intelligence had tested up to 92 in some areas and averaged in the mid-70s. They argued that his intelligence was not low enough to stop him from knowing right from wrong and understanding his crimes. They presented his history of being able to pass workplace exams, driving tests, and the ability to read blueprints as evidence that he was capable of making sound decisions. Oh, absolutely. And even with Diane, he didn't attack her until he knew that her husband wasn't home. And then he started to attack her. So he had enough intelligence to know that it was wrong and that he had to do it when another man wasn't going to be around. Yeah. And I think just his manipulative nature of knowing to put people at ease or trying to put them at ease shows that he does have intelligence enough to understand what he's doing is wrong. Right. And he has premeditation. He's stalking these women ahead of time and he's doing it secretly because Mm -hmm. he knows that it's wrong. Yeah. The jury sided with the prosecution after 93 minutes. Derek was sentenced to death by lethal injection. After the death sentence was proclaimed, the rest of the parishes declined to prosecute at that time but reserved the right to do so in the future. This saved all of the other victims' families the ordeal of going through a trial. There was no way that Derek was ever going to be able to leave prison with both of these sentences, and so it was kind of a mute point to prosecute further. I always have mixed feelings on that because you want them to have the justice But I do understand not wanting the families to have to go through trial. But I feel like then it should be left up to the families. Mm -hmm. And it did sound like for the most part, it was left up to families. There was one family that it sounded like they would have preferred to prosecute, but it's too much money to do so. Hmm. Psychologists that have examined the case feel that Derek's victims represented women that he felt were unobtainable by him. White or light skinned women that he had learned as a child not to interact with. Smart women that had made fun of him for being slow. His perversions and addictions for wanting what he couldn't have morphed from just looking and not touching to having to possess and control the woman for his own sexual gratification. And ultimately taking their lives. Yeah, he just needed to control every part of their lives. Yeah. Not everyone felt that this is why Derek killed or that he had even done any of the killings. What? Derek's mother and Jacqueline stood by Derek. No. They ate up the defense's case to the jury. That because Derek had been a special education student in school, he would not have been able to carry out all of these crimes that he was accused of and leave no evidence behind. Except he did because he left all of his DNA behind. Yeah, almost every time. Both women claim that McDavid and Detective Ray Day of the Zachary Police Department had set Derek up and that even through all of their harassment and multiple searches, They had never been able to find any evidence until they took the swabs from inside Derek's cheek, something that was done after all the women had died. 
So they think they planted that DNA on all of the evidence. Yeah. But that DNA had been run earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Just had nothing to match it to. That's right. So that kiboshes that kind of train of thought. Exactly. But that's still what they hold to. And their whole claim was that Derek was this poor black man that had been harassed by this white police department. And that's so surprising coming from Jacqueline when she's been abused viciously by this man. And even his mother saw him attack a woman one time Mm -hmm. and then to say, no, he couldn't do this. Like there's denial, but then like this is denial. This is a whole nother level. And McDavid and Ray Day, it did sound like they were on him constantly. Like they thought he was a serial killer. And so they were watching him all the time when he was in their jurisdiction. They were constantly giving him a hard time at home. And so Jacqueline had said on several occasions, you watch, they're going to frame you for this serial killer. And actually, he was the serial killer. Yeah, that burns my butt too. Like you are the grossest little dirtbag doing all this heinous stuff and a cop is doing a good job and he's on you and you're going to call harassment. Yeah. Give me a break. But that was part of the appeals. We could go into a whole nother case of just talking about that part of this case. Because there are people that are like, yeah, he was framed. It was the white guy, this other Sean Grillis. But they have his DNA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they had the DNA before they took <laughs> Derek's DNA from him. Like, how can that even be disputed? Yeah. Leave but... David McDavid alone. He was doing his <laughs> job. He tried. People just weren't listening to him. Yeah. Derek was housed in a six by nine foot cell in Angola prison in Louisiana on death row. It is said to be one of the harshest prisons in the U.S. Its inmates have pursued lawsuits that death row is equivalent to psychological torture because of the forced solitary confinement and having to spend almost all of their time in their cell idle without any mental or sensory stimulation. Hmm. And so I thought back to that case and how you were questioning, is this too much? But at the same time, I was feeling that would be a hard life. I'll give you that. But it's still way more of a life than his victims got. Well, and what Robert was being incarcerated for and what Derek is, is a, a different ball game, I think. And should that play into it? I don't know. Anyway, I thought it was interesting to note that there have been lawsuits against the Angola prison. That is interesting mm-hmm. because you do have to have a sense of humanity inside your prisons. Yeah. So the prisoners on death row, they are only allowed out of their cell for one hour a day and they go out of their cell. They're allowed to shower and to exercise, but they do so in isolation. They go to an outside area that only they're allowed in. So they have no other interaction and they're allowed to attend religious services, but it's very infrequent. Like it's like one every month again alone. Hmm. And so they are in complete isolation. I found it so interesting. It is interesting. After numerous denied appeals, Derek Todd Lee died shortly after 9 a.m. on January 21st, 2016, but it wasn't from lethal injection. Instead, he passed away in hospital at the age of 47 from a heart condition. Wow. His death was met by mixed emotions from his victims' families. Some were relieved, some felt cheated, and some still felt that the system had acted too slowly once again. They had waited all these years, let him do all of these appeals. They were supposed to put him to death and he died while waiting to be put to death. I think that's the perfect justice Mm. because that would have been hell for him living in a little six by nine box. Yeah. Like sometimes I hate to say it, but maybe death is the easy way out. 
Maybe. Like he was made to suffer in that box. So if you're wanting that type of revenge and suffering, that's where it's at, I would say. I'm not an expert. And I don't know. I can go back and forth on my feelings on it. But I can see how they would all have mixed emotions. Yeah. And whatever they did feel, they all felt it very strongly, it seemed like. Yeah. I mean, this is such a terrible thing. There's no good outcome after a man has done these horrible, horrible things. No. One of the detectives that had worked on the case said that the biggest regret was that Derek never admitted guilt and never told them where Randy's body was. They were never able to bring her home. And that is sad. That is like a slap in the face when they don't even admit what they've done. Mm -hmm. And that is the frustrating and sadly longer than necessary case of the pervert and not so special Derek Todd Lee who killed women that he felt he could only get by force. Wow. That was a monster of a case, Melissa. It just kept on going because he was given so many extra chances. Like, I cannot believe how many times they could have incarcerated him and saved so many lives. And how many were there? So there were seven confirmed, and then there are seven believed to be connected to him that I didn't even present. So he could have done up to 14. Yeah. Or even more, for all we know. Mm -hmm. What is clear is that lives could have been saved, and Derek Todd Lee was a dirtbag. 100%. I know you've said in the past that sometimes you just are so glad to be done with that case. And this is one of those ones. Oh, I can see how you would be done with this case. So I am happy to say goodbye to Derek Todd Lee. And I'll be looking forward to your next case that you can tell me about next week. (laughs) I do have an interesting one for you next week. And I hope that all of our listeners will join us for that one. But until then, see ya. Bye. This is a good start, Christy. Father that Derek knew growing up. Growing up. We're in for a ride. I know. Okay. <laughs> I'm so nervous about messing up that I, I can't even read. <laughs> for the bur- burglary. <laughs> you and the word burglary. <laughs> it's your nemesis word. It is. For the burglary. <laughs> for the robbery. David McDavid. David McDavid. Okay. I'll, I'll call him McDavid from now on. <laughs> and I had to say his name once. Yeah. That's awesome. The other guy's name is Ray Day. Ray Day? I <laughs> <Yeah>. love it. <laughs> but like your last name's McDavid. What should we name our son? How about think? David? We have to find some things to giggle about when we're talking about such heavy things. Yeah. But he was quick, quickly. He was quickly. He was quickly. Don't put this in here, but I'd be like, Davik, Davik, Davik. <laughs> what? Okay, mm-hmm. don't put that in there then. <laughs> oh my goodness! Just read the words that are there. I get so frustrated. Good job, Melissa. Yeah, I want a different ending. Okay. Um, well, now that I'm traumatized for the day. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents?
We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Cundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.